Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden, I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Do Good to Lead Well webinar series. Great to have you with us today, and I'm really excited to welcome our guest, Daryl Stickle, a phenomenal thought leader and friends and colleagues. Really looking forward to this conversation. For those of you who have joined us for the first time, very warm welcome. Great to have you here for you to join this conversation today. For those of you who returned, also an equally warm welcome. Really appreciate your ongoing support of this Do Good to Lead Well series, both podcast and webinar. To give a little bit of context for those of you who have just joined, this series was launched as in advance of my first book, Do Good to Lead Well, The Science and Practice of Positive Leadership. And I have the profound privilege in my day-to-day work to be able to speak with top thought leaders, CEOs, of global organizations to hear about their insights, their expertise, their experience. And what I wanted to do was broaden that conversation, invite more people in to a community of learning and and best practices. And so this was really fundamental in terms of shaping that. And so I'm thrilled that today I have the profound privilege of welcoming Daryl Stickle. He is the founder of Trust Unlimited, and the author of a fantastic book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. And you can see I've got my copy and I've dug in and it's just absolutely rich with information. His PhD, Building Trust in Hostile Environments from Duke University, really established his unique and practical approach to building trust. And that's something you're going to hear yourselves today during our conversation. He's worked as a consultant with McKinsey and Company. He's taught his methods at universities and in boardrooms around the world. And he continues to advise and coach C-suite executives and delivers trust workshops to both small and large audiences. For those of you who've come back, he was a guest last year on the program and absolutely received phenomenal reviews, rave reviews. Everyone's like, hey, let me know when Daryl's coming back. So now that his book is out, I'm absolutely excited to say hello to Daryl. Daryl, welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well series. Thanks, Craig. It's so great to be here. Well, and there's so much to dive into. And what I love is that your work is evidence-based. It's all around promoting positive leadership behaviors, building positive organizations and cultures. So I'd love to start with what got you into studying trust? And you really wanted to lay your flag there, if you will. Love to hear that story. Yeah. So I, I was born and raised in a small town named Fort St. John. It's a small community in northeastern British Columbia. There was a strong sense of community. We had to rely on each other. The conditions were fairly harsh. 
it was one of these places where not everyone was a saint, but everyone realized we had to pull together. And so I grew up with a strong sense that if I could help people, I should, and that it was the responsibility of the strong to protect the weak. And so I developed a sense of empathy and understanding for others. And partway along the way, you know, I was playing hockey in Fort St. John because there wasn't much else to do really during the winters. I was playing junior hockey in Fort Nelson and I got attacked by a fan with a club, shattered my helmet, knocked me unconscious. Apparently I stopped breathing three times on the way to the hospital. And what that did was it actually, because I'm legally blind, I was, I was visually impaired on my way to becoming legally blind then. I knew that I had to train myself to think for a living. And now all of a sudden I was incredibly vulnerable. The thing that had sort of set me apart from others was placed at risk. And so it sharpened that sense of empathy for others, that that ability to understand where other people were struggling. You know, I went to school. I started out in computer science and then went into theater and it was sort of a lost soul in some ways. But I would find myself sitting on a bus in Victoria and people would just sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. And so I just found that for some reason people opened up to me and and, and I thought, you know, if this is going to keep happening, maybe I should get paid for this. I went into psychology and I, I started working with families in crisis and on crisis lines and with troubled teens and trying to hone those skills so I'd be a good therapist. And partway along the way, I realized that a lot of the folks I was working with, even if you could see a path forward for them, they struggled to take it. And I thought, if I do this for the rest of my life, I'll go insane. And so I ended up shifting my perspective and working in native land claims. And in British Columbia, it was one of the last places where they hadn't settled land claims with the local population that were first here. And so they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government or what will BC look like 50 years after claims are settled? And the last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for 100 years they should trust us? And I thought, wow, that's a really good question. And so it sort of spoke to this notion of long-term disputes and our inability to resolve them. And, and it got me curious. And I thought, I may have a different perspective, given my background in history and training than most others. And, and that turned out to be the case. You know, I went to Duke and had a couple of amazing academic leaders there on the topic of trust. Sim Sitkin and Karen Cook were the chairs of my committee. And they were both considered leading experts in the world on the topic of trust. When I finished my thesis, they sat down with me and we were having a drink together. And they said, you know, when you first came to us, we said, it's too big. He'll never solve it. We'll give him six months and he'll come crawling back to us and we'll let him chisel off a little piece and that'll be his thesis. And they said, six months in, you were so far beyond us, we couldn't help anymore. All we mm -hmm. can do is sit and watch. And they said, here we are two years later. We think you've solved it. <laughs> and so I then went to McKinsey where they offered me a nice signing bonus and, and plenty of money. And and they said, well, you've got really good client hands. Let's send you to the worst places possible. And so now all of a sudden I'm getting some practical applied experience about how to apply this model that I've spent so much time thinking about, right? And then I was involved in a car accident, ended up with post-concussion syndrome, couldn't work 100 hours a week anymore. And so I started Trust Unlimited. One of my former colleagues came to me and said, hey, just come talk to us. He was head of strategy for a mutual fund company. I said, sure, you know, I'm happy to come talk to you. What do you want me to talk about? He said, well, how about sustainable competitive advantage? And so I 
thought about it and I realized that means you do something better than your competitors that they can't copy. And, and you don't do anything I can't copy. If I buy one share of every fund you have, I now know how they're all built. I can sell what you sell at a discount because I haven't had to pay the fund advisor. And I said, the only thing you can do is build deep long-term relationships with your customers. And they said, that's it. That's our strategy. And so the next 18 months, I developed a workshop and I trained everyone. After 18 months, they hired a professional survey firm and found out that trust was the primary driver of the Mm -hmm. sales decision. And they generated 75 cents of every new dollar that came into the industry for the next two years. And they went from sort of middle of the pack to dominating. And they were part of a global financial services firm. And that firm started sending teams from all over the world to figure out what these folks were doing because they were dominating not just in Canada, but around the world. And so, so I now knew I had something that worked and I've spent the last 20 years trying to help people solve problems. Well, and thank you for sharing your story and what I love. There's so many pieces to it. And, and one of the key elements is, is around, well, how you took that experience and then transformed it. And one of the things that I love is, and it comes through in conversation, it comes through in the book, you can really pick up on very quickly your energy for being a positive force in the world, for getting people to really look at themselves and challenge some of the assumptions they have. And how do you build deeper, stronger, more trusting relationships with others? And as well, I love your focus on positive behaviors, drive positive results. You do, you know, an outstanding job of talking about how trust drives the most valuable outcomes. The things that we say we want the most, it's foundational. So let's talk about the book because I love the book as, as I show yeah. my copy and was really excited that that was going to happen. Walk us through. So what was the rationale? What was your motivation to do it? What, you know, what did you want to impart to readers? And so love to hear that. Yeah. So I felt, I feel like, I'm dropping small grains of sand in the ocean. You know, I've, I've really worked hard to hone the training programs that I deliver to make them more practical and applied to help people change behavior patterns, to make positive change in their life. And I was having some incredible positive experiences, helping people reunite that had been fractured, helping leaders have, you know, remarkable moments or or powerful experiences, but it just didn't feel like it was enough. And I, I look around the world and I see that there's a, we're struggling, Craig. I went to a conference, a virtual conference that Duke was holding on rebuilding trust in institutions. And it was four hours long. And they were trying to rebuild trust in government and media and technology. And they spent the four hours saying things are bad. It's really, really bad. It's the worst we've ever seen. And then somebody finally said, well, isn't the title of this conference rebuilding trust? Like, what do we do? And said, we don't know. We just don't know. And I'm sitting in the audience go, ooh, ooh, pick me. Because I know. <laughs> and so I wrote the book to try to scale what I'm doing. And I, I tried not to hold anything back. I tried to show people why trust matters, why I'm somebody who, would, who has a perspective on it that, that may be unique and, and helpful. How the model works. And then how to actually pull those levers, how to, how to build trust with somebody else, some really practical applied approaches, and then some case studies at the back end to try to help people learn from those examples. My goal is really to help people build better relationships, to try to beat back the tide of negativity that seems to be buffeting all of us. You know, one of the clients I work with, 
I work with this amazing leader named Kelsey Trigg, and I, I'm comfortable saying that because she's told everyone, and she's global head of HR advisors for SAP. So she's got a virtual team that's global in nature. She's got dozens of direct reports from dozens of countries and different time zones and cultures, and, and they work in a tech company. And she's got over 8,000 customers that she serves, leaders within that company. Her trust scores are off the charts. And so are her teams. And she attributes that to having a shared vocabulary. And so I, I trained all of them. You know, I, I did a short session with all of them. And she said, you know, people use the language that you use. And it allows us to talk about trust problems in a way that we normally wouldn't. And I've seen it work. And I want it to work more broadly. I want people to pick up the book and read it and not just read it, but apply it. Yeah. That's that's why I wrote the book. Well, and a couple of key things. I, I love the insights in the book. And then also, as you shared, Daryl, the case examples. And I yeah. think what's really awesome and for people who have been a part of this community for a long time, it's all around practical application because you can have great ideas. You can have amazing models with all kinds of fun colors and, and graphics. And then it's like, okay, how do I make this a reality? And so that's a big, big part of why I was so excited this afternoon to talk with you is about, so how do we operationalize this and to inspire people to go check you out, check out your work, your book, to really learn how to do that in the most effective way. And one of the things that both of us have talked about, we can have a self-serving bias, right, where we don't see our own trust gap. So what I'd love for you to do through your own research and your own extensive experience, like what are some of the symptoms of low trust? Like, that right. I, hey, I'm building great trusting relationships. What are some little signals that may go, hmm, Craig, you might want to think about yeah, that Yeah, maybe again. not. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah, so, and, and that's a fantastic question, Craig, which is not surprising, given our, you know, our past conversations have been so rich. 95% of people believe they're more trustworthy than average, which is not just statistically impossible, but it's problematic because it means that when we run across a problem, we, we don't recognize it. Or if we do recognize it, we think it's somebody else's fault. Mm-hmm. You know, it's their issue to deal with. And so a lot of times, you know, we can't just ask somebody, because if I just say, hey, do you trust me? There's this pressure the other person feels to say yes, because it's rude to say no. And they don't completely know sometimes, right? So a lot of times we have to look for those symptoms. and some of the symptoms we'll see are, you know, if we're working in an organization, we'll see a high turnover rate. We'll see low levels of engagement. We'll see dissatisfied customers, vault stock price. We'll see a lot of gossip and political behavior. When I'm working with senior executives, I'll ask them, who do you trust? And they come back with sort of close, tight personal relationships. When I flip the question and say, who trusts you? I usually get a really long pause. Then they say, well, how would I know? And the answer to that comes from the definition, which is trust is the willingness to make yourself vulnerable when you can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. And so we start asking ourselves, how can people make themselves vulnerable to us? And do they? You know, as a dad, I ask myself, how can my sons make themselves vulnerable to me? Well, they share things that are uncomfortable for them. And they talk to me about things that really matter to them. You know, I don't get one word answers. I don't get vague responses. You know, if they're struggling with their girlfriend, they tell me. And we have a conversation about it. If they're struggling with their friends, they tell me. 
If they're struggling at work, they tell me. If they feel like they can't get something right, we have a conversation about it. And, you know, if I'm a leader, are people coming to me with bad news? Are they taking risks? Are they willing to push back against ideas that, that might not make sense? Are we actually having candid conversations or is everybody walking on eggshells? Those are some of the symptoms that I see. And if I thought more broadly about that, you know, if I was looking at symptoms I might see within a society or a community, there would be things like people not obeying the rules, right? Because they don't feel that the rules work for them. Protests, things like vigilante justice, mass looting, people believing that the system's rigged or that voting isn't valid anymore. It doesn't matter because democracy is flawed. I don't know if you've seen any of these signals or symptoms. <laughs> I've seen <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I've got a great follow-up question from someone that adds a question I wanted to ask you as well. So David was wondering, so it just seems like we've cratered on the trust. <laughs> on trust. Why is that? What's going on? What's yeah. what is creating such a disconnect here? And I get to ask that question by a lot of folks, and it's a, it's a really good question. If I was the Duke Rebuilding Trust seminar, I would say, we don't know. <laughs> but the reality is, is that trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. When we're deciding to trust someone, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The first is, how likely am I to be harmed? Which is mm -hmm. perceived uncertainty. And the second question is, if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt? Which is perceived vulnerability. And so when we're deciding to trust someone, it's uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. We each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And if our perception of the risk goes beyond that threshold, we don't trust. And if it's beneath it, then we do. And we've been seeing massive spikes in uncertainty. So we, we've seen, you know, technological change. We've seen a pandemic with widely different perspectives on what the right approach is and how we should handle it. The sort of right approach has changed over time, multiple times. And so it's getting harder and harder to know who to believe or what best practice are. We've seen escalations in paranoid sort of attributions, you know, these sort of conspiracy theories that are popping up. All of these things are feeding in. And at the same time, we're experiencing dramatic division along political spectrums between races, between genders, between religious ideologies. All of these things are creating massive spikes in uncertainty. And our perceptions of vulnerability are not shrinking. We've got a pandemic. We've got supply chain issues. We've got inflation. We've got global tensions. So our perceptions of vulnerability aren't going down either. And so that makes trust harder and harder and harder. And at the same time, we're shifting, right? We're, we're seeing teams becoming more virtual or hybrid organizations becoming more hybrid, the rules of the game are changing. <laughs> and we're seeing people vilified for things they did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, which makes us really hesitant about how we behave now. Right. So those massive spikes in uncertainty are part of what's causing the problem. We can fix this by being more intentional, more aware, having explicit conversations that reduce uncertainty. You know, in the book, I talk about 10 levers we can pull. Well, if we're thoughtful about pulling those levers and about being more intentional in our relationships, the value of trust is incredible. And it's become increasingly so because anything that becomes scarce becomes more valuable the scarcer it becomes. 
if we're able to build trust, that means we've got a competitive advantage over everybody. And we create these safe harbors that other people want to be part of. And so it's, it's worth the effort. It's worth being thoughtful about. And it's absolutely possible to build. I've seen it happen too often. I had a, a senior executive as part of one of my teams that I was working with. He decided that he wanted the relationship with his son to be the relationship he practiced on. I get people to practice in these settings. And he said, you know, we're estranged. Things aren't going well for him. He's engaged in some behavior I don't like. You know, I used to have a 12-week program. Now it's two eight-week programs that I run with senior leaders. At the end of the 12-week program, I'm going around and I'm checking in with folks saying, okay, so how's it gone? You know, what's the feedback? And we're getting these great stories. And, and he says, okay, so what I didn't tell you is that my wife was on the, in the process of filing for divorce. And he said, here we are 12 weeks later, we're closer than we've ever been. And my son just threw his arms around me, gave me the biggest hug I've ever had and said, I need you in my life. I love you, dad. That's how it's going. Wow. So we can see change like that. We can have impact like that. We just need to be aware. No, absolutely. And I love that story and lots of great comments on that and, and got another question from Tara. So, which I think is, is great. She was wondering, so love the idea of building deeper connections with people and any advice around what if someone gives one word answers as you, your example kind of prompted with her, you know, do you trust me? Yes. So what do you do when someone is, is stuck with one word answers? Any Jedi tricks to, to deepen that connection? So I start to get more curious, and there's a book that I used when my kids were younger. It was uh, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. But part of it is trying to ask open-ended questions, and then when you're not getting the responses, being more transparent, saying, look, I really want to connect with you, and I want to have conversations with you, but it doesn't seem to be working. What do you suggest I try? And so bringing them into that conversation, and so much of the work that I do with folks is you know, we're going to try to pull the benevolence lever, for example. So benevolence is a belief you have my best interest at heart. When I ask parents, you know, I work with families, I ask parents who, who here has their kid's best interest at heart, all the hands go up. But when I flip that question and I say, how many of your kids would say that? I get about a third and it's somewhat hesitant. And so if it's not obvious in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, how hard is it if we're struggling as, as leaders or as community members or as colleagues or coworkers? And I do this in the book and I do this in my workshops as I give people a template for here's some questions you can ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as an example, I'll say, hey, I saw this guy talking about trust and he was talking about benevolence, you know, this belief you have somebody else's best interest at heart. And I think I do that, but I don't think it lands that way all the time. Have you ever experienced that? And they'll inevitably go, oh God, yes. And then you say, well, have you ever had somebody really act in your best interest? Really have your back? What did that look like? What did they do? And now you're starting to get hints. And then you narrow the funnel further and you say, what does success look like for you? How could I be helpful? What would it look like if I had your best interest at heart? What would it look like if I was benevolent? And now you start to surface that, Right. And now you've got this nugget of information that you can cycle back to and be transparent about as you're going along. And so, you know, with my sons, I used to always pay special attention to what their favorite treats were. 
they would say, oh, do we have any drumsticks or whatever? And I'd say, oh, we do. Oh, and look, you get the last one. And I'd say, how does that always happen? And they, they, they go, you save it for me. And I say, yeah, I do. Because I'm thinking about you even when you're not here. And so taking opportunities to be aware of the other person and include them in that conversation, that's how we start to get them to crack open a bit. And what I love about your answer, Daryl, is a couple of things. Number one is the intentionality. So like directly, and it's so interesting, the power of stating our intentions, because so many people, and I see it in my work, and I know you see it in yours in terms of just like, we assume people see that, right? Yeah. And I I love that point that you make is around stating. Let people know, hey, I'm trying to connect with you right now. So just remove all the shadow of doubt. And here's here's what I'm trying to do. And then I also love, which is so neat, because we tend to take that responsibility up. Well, I got to figure this out versus just going, how can I do this? Give, yeah. give me the answers to the exam. You raise a great point, Craig, because this is one of the struggles we face in the world right now is there's there's groups saying, hey, things aren't great and you need to fix it. And that's how we got where we are. What we need is to say, hey, things aren't great right now. We need to figure it out. We need to fix it. You know, when my oldest was 12, he looked at me one day and he said, even when you're upset with me, I know it's about what's best for me. And I thought, okay, I'm winning. Because if they start with that, they start with a positive story about us. And we interpret the world through stories, Craig, as you know. And so if they start with a positive story, then there's a positive interpretation for our actions. They give us the benefit of the doubt. And it means that we can mess up often and they're still there pulling for us, right? They're still trying to help us be successful. You know, with Tara's example, when my kids do that, or if they fall into that pattern, I'll say, okay, so I'm struggling right now. I'm struggling because I'm trying to connect with you and it's not working. And I'm noticing the following behaviors and it's it's got me concerned because I love you and I care about you. How do I be helpful? How do I connect in a way that's meaningful so that you've got someone to talk to? And sharing that story and sharing that, making ourselves a little bit vulnerable triggers that norm of reciprocity. It makes other people want to do the same. I know you've been called a trust savant, so maybe you just anticipated this question where Susan was wondering, so is that the only way to get someone to be vulnerable is for you to be vulnerable first? Can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic? Yeah. So... Wow. Susan, the 20 bucks is in the mail. That's a great question. One of the quickest ways to get other people to be vulnerable, which is that, you know, trust is that willingness to be vulnerable. One of the quickest ways is for us to start and make ourselves a little bit vulnerable first so that we, we trigger that for somebody else. And, and that can be really hard for leaders to engage in. Now, we've seen a pandemic. We've seen people being forced to be more vulnerable than they're comfortable with. And that's actually potentially a profound opportunity where we're able to step in and help someone when we notice a vulnerability. You know, I have the good fortune of being legally blind. And and the reason I say I have the good fortune of that is because I wander the world with my guide dog, Drake. If people go to my website at trustunlimited.com and they look at the about section, they'll see a picture of Drake. He's the director of goodness, the DOG for my company. And because of Drake, people approach me. And The world is a friendly, helpful, caring place. And I wish that everyone experienced the world the way that Drake and I do. 
you know, there are some people who don't want to engage. There are some people who they sort themselves, which is a beautiful thing as well, because there's so many people who will see Drake and I, and if we're stuck or we're struggling or we're trying to figure something out, they want to be helped. This observation of somebody being vulnerable and, and asking if you can help is one way to sort of get them to trust you. And, and people ask me, what's the fastest way to build trust? It's vulnerability and benevolence. It's a little bit of vulnerability myself, followed by some benevolence. Lots of great comments here and questions coming in fast and furious. Allison was also wondering, so we love the idea about uncertainty and that we are unprecedented uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> and it just keeps going up and up. What are some things that we can do as individuals maybe to, to reduce the uncertainty that other people feel around us, building on some of the insights you've shared, Daryl? That's a great question. So I think that when we're trying to build trust, there are 10 levers, as I said, and we all have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others. And so what I try to do is help people move along the continuum. So those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull, and it's usually the ability lever. And those who are better have multiple levers that they pull. And those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. In uncertainty, there are four different levers that we can pull. Three of those are, are attributed to us as individuals. This is work that was done in 1995 by a friend of mine named Roger Mayer. Seminal work on trust. And it's, it's what overwhelmingly the public or popular press stuff talks about. It's benevolence, integrity, and ability. Those are the three levers we have as individuals. And benevolence is the belief you've got my best interest at heart and that you'll act to my best interest. Integrity is do I follow through on my promises? And are my actions aligned with the values I express? And ability is, do I actually have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And then the fourth lever is the context lever, right? The, because so many of the things that constrain our behavior are maybe obvious to us. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we, if we sit and think, we'll think about, well, why did I do that? You know, and, and I would ask people often when I was doing workshops, I'd say, if you could be anywhere doing anything with anyone right now, how many of you would be sitting here listening to and I stopped doing that, Craig, because it wasn't good for my self-esteem. Um, <laughs> but overwhelmingly, the answer was context, right? It's my job, or I'm, I've got a problem I'm struggling with, or, you know, the other class was full. So there's <laughs> some reason for people to be there to do what they say they're, to do what they're doing. Now, us reducing uncertainty means pulling those levers. Like I said, ability is our favorite lever. I've got this much experience, these kinds of credentials, this position in the organization. But even that one, we don't always get right. You know, when I sit with a group of senior executives and I say, who here's a great leader? All the hands go up and I say, well, what does that mean? And they'll be like, oh, I don't know. And so when I work with groups, I'll talk to them about, okay, let's talk about the ability lever and how we pull it properly. Mm -hmm. And that means... I need to include other people in the conversation. And so if I think about what being a great guest on your show looks like, it can't just be me saying, okay, so, you know, I cleaned up the background and combed my hair and I, I wore a decent shirt. Yeah. I've got to include what you think good looks like. So am I engaging for your audience? Am I talking about things in a way that they understand? Am I actually answering questions? And I got to think about it from the perspective of your audience. What do they think a good guest looks like? Yeah. You know, is this, helping me actually solve problems. And so if I want to pull the ability lever, I need to think about who should be involved in that conversation and what does good look like from their perspective. With my sons, we'll have conversations every once in a while about what does a good dad look like? 
what does excellence look like as a father? And I got to tell you, it's, it's terrifying to ask that question. And fortunately, my sons love me. We have just this amazing relationship. And they don't say it'd be helpful if we had a guy who could see. Because I can't fix that, right? <laughs> but they, they articulate the things that they appreciate. And it gives them a chance to say, well, maybe a little less of this. Maybe a little more of that. Mm. And, and so we need to include others in that conversation. If we're talking about the integrity lever, how do we pull the integrity lever? Well, we have a penchant for over-promising and under-delivering. We need to stop doing that. We need to make promises about things we have control over, about our effort, about the steps we will take, not about outcomes, because mm -hmm. often we don't control those outcomes. And we need to, because people interpret the world through stories, we need to be transparent about, okay, so I made a commitment about the following. This is me following through on that commitment. Because sometimes we fall down when we think, I think I've made a promise and you think you've heard something different. Right. So if I follow up and I say, okay, I think I just followed through on my promise, it gives you the chance to say, whoa, 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 that's not what you promised me. And so then we can have a conversation and clarify. And because people interpret the world through stories, we need to tell people the story about how our decisions and actions align with our values. You know, I'm answering questions as honestly and openly and completely as I can because I want people to understand trust and, and to change the way that they behave in the world. I'm not here just to flog books or to sell product. I genuinely want to help people. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm not saying, well, if you bought my book in chapter six, you'd see. <laughs> That's, so, and then the benevolence one is, is again, that conversation about thinking about how we act in someone's interest, including them in that conversation, getting a clear sense from them what their interests are, and then being transparent when we're thinking about their interests and how we're trying to push against them. Mm. So I hope that helps. No, absolutely. And linking it back to where you were saying as well, because, okay, if we're showing up to a conversation, I love how you framed it in terms of this context on the webinar and the podcast. It's not just about, well, we all have our own kind of interests and things that we're looking to do. And then it's, okay, so what about the host? How do I connect with the host? What about the audience? Like, what do you, oh, I think that they're, why are they showing up to hear our conversation around building trust? How can I impart maximum value for them? And I yeah. think it provides such a rich experience for everybody and really helps drive those outcomes that you so expertly talk about. I want to ask a question around, so the ability part, which I love, and you talk about, hey, we just tend to lead with that. So is experience and ability, are those things injured? I was like, I've been doing this 30 years, so I must be doing something right. Because right. you hear people, right, just trying to, or how yeah. long have you been in this industry or in this role? And, you know, this is my, so is that is that a fair connection? It, it's often a proxy. Yeah. Mm. And it doesn't matter that I've been doing it wrong for 30 years. I've been doing it for 30 years. You know, I must have learned something along right. the way. We lean on ability. The problem is, is that if the gap is in benevolence or integrity or in the context, and we're pulling the ability lever we miss. Right. Right. And so being really competent as an evil jerk doesn't convince anybody. Right. <laughs> and so the thing is, is that as leaders, we often want ability from our subordinates. Mm -hmm. But as subordinates, we want benevolence. Right. And we want integrity. And I'm talking to the expert of doing good to lead well. Well, what does doing good mean? It means benevolence and integrity. Right. And I think that those are the most powerful levers for leaders 
And it's, they are often the most powerful levers for our kids, for mm-hmm. our partners. And, you know, Simon Sinek does a piece on ability versus trust. And I don't, I don't separate those, but, but in his mind, working with Navy SEALs, he says they prefer trust. They can work on ability. Yep. So, well, and I love that point as well that you're talking about. So what do leaders want? Ability. What do employees want? They want benevolence and integrity. And then it's really interesting if we look at our broader context. So let's let's have some fun and bring all this together, right? What are yeah. we what are we reading about? The great resignation, quiet quitting. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, people not being engaged anymore, not connecting with their work, not believing that the organizations have their best interest at heart. The pandemic was a challenge, but it was also a massive opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity for organizations to get it right. And overwhelmingly, they didn't. Right. Some organizations were really thoughtful about their people and, and built a bunch of social capital, but most of them didn't. I love this conversation. There's another question I want to ask because this is interesting. And I love the, the concept of vulnerability. So right. here's one of the, I, I'd love to get your expert take on this, Daryl. So sometimes in conversations I have in my coaching practice, sometimes people can be, well, they're reluctant to be vulnerable or they shy away from it because there's almost like this, this deal that, okay, well, I'm going to be vulnerable, then you must respond in a certain way, right? Like, so it's almost an it, then, right. if I'm going to be like this, then you have to be like that or I'm going to be upset. So What's your take on that in terms of when we express vulnerability and then almost expressing it with a caveat, if this is going to come, you need to do this or else I'm going to be upset. I'd love to get your perspective. I will have people ask me, you know, well, my boss is a jerk or my colleague doesn't do X and could you fix them? I'm not in the fixing other people game. I'm in the helping people manage their own behavior game. And when we choose to be vulnerable, We need to be thoughtful about how vulnerable we want to be and about the long-term consequences of that. And it's a trial balloon that we're floating out there. And if the other person doesn't pick it up, then we need to say, okay, so they're not interested in connecting at that level. That's okay. And I'll try it with someone else. But it's an easy way to test to see if somebody's prepared to move a little deeper or not. And, you know, you, you may well run into people where you, you open up a little bit and they, they have a rigid, stiff response because they're terrified, right? They're like, oh my God, you're being vulnerable to me. And now you probably expect I'm going to do something similar. Yes. And, And they're not ready yet. And it may happen a week later, a month later, or a year later where they go, oh, you remember that time when you told me X, I'm struggling with something similar. And so we just have to be patient and let people progress at their own pace. Well, and what I love about what you're sharing, the data scientists and me in particular, just sharing my own bias. It's a little I frame it. A couple of things. Number one, you talk about, hey, we have to have a conversation with ourselves around how comfortable and how vulnerable am I willing to be in this situation? And the really cool piece is, I love that you say trial balloon, right? I'm going to put it out there. 
what's a good a risk, right? That's acceptable for me. Rather than, okay, I'm just going to do a complete trust fall. <laughs> right. Now, and then you can help gauge and then you go, okay, so if Daryl clams up and looks like the deer in the headlights, this is the worst thing ever. Okay, you know, back, beep, 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 back of the truck. And so, yeah. And what I also love about what you shared too, because I think this is such a powerful insight for people tuning in is that, that doesn't mean it's an ineffective strategy. In fact, it's a great strategy. The context is is off. And so that person isn't ready and or and or whatever. And then you think about applying it somewhere else. Is that a fair? Absolutely. And this conversation around vulnerability, I mean, we we hear Brene Brown talk about vulnerability. We hear Amy Edmondson talk about psychological safety, which is an element of vulnerability. Are, are there environments where I'm comfortable taking risks or, or making myself vulnerable? There's some real richness here. And one of the challenges that I'm seeing, particularly with leaders right now, is that the world is changing so fast that they need to more systematically let go of the things that got them where they are, the things that they're comfortable with and were good at that got them to the place they are, and engage in new behaviors. And there's an element of vulnerability to that. Because I don't know about the rest of the world, but the first time I try something, I'm terrible. (laughs) <laughs> and and there's a reason we talk about experience, right? So as I start to practice and get better at it, I'll get better at it, but I'm going to make mistakes. And so as a leader, we need to be able to create an environment where that's okay, where people understand the intent. And well, well, and I love that. And I think you're so right in terms of our willingness to let go of the the models that we had before. And then to adapt to the new data that's coming in. And and I couldn't agree more in terms of, and this is going to be an integral part of being an effective leader as we move forward, because things are changing so rapidly. There's so much to stay on top of. We've got to get information from as many places as we can. Yeah. As honest, right? The maximum honesty so that we we have all of the most reliable information possible. I love what you're talking about and how you're talking about it and your linkage to, as you discussed, Daryl, Brene Brown and her work on vulnerability, her incredible work and psychological safety. This has always been there. And now that part, and I love the link with your work right around building trust. And and these are, well, this is the top of the house, if you will, in terms of how to orient. I have another question and I can't, it's, and this happened last time, so I'm not surprised. I guess we're almost an hour. I'm like, no, we're just getting started. So S- Scott was wondering the link between doing what you say and then following through. Yeah, sounds like made a misstep here, and everybody knows it and doesn't know how to rebuild. Feels like lost trust in the team, yet also was afraid how to, to deal with that because there's a fear of. Well, if I admit that I was wrong, they're not going to trust me even more. So can you right. love that? I think it's a great okay. Way to go, Scott. So I worked with a leader who, they worked in an organization that actually measured trust levels in their leaders, and, and which I thought was really fantastic. Head of the curve. And if you read the book, you'll see that it's SAP. They do measurement and they hold leaders accountable. They say, hey, you have to have decent trust scores. But if you don't do well, then the leader goes, well, what do I do now? And they kind of go, well, I don't know. So I worked with a leader whose trust score was 13 out of 100. We walked through and did a little bit of coaching on how to pull the different levers. And then we had a conversation with her team and said, here's what benevolence is. Now, what would it look like if she did that for you guys? 
And here's what integrity is. And are there places where either she or the organization have fallen down? Have they done things that don't look consistent? Have they made promises they weren't able to follow through on? What's the history of that? And what does excellence look like? And then we started talking about the context and, and we said, okay, so now you are equipped to have a conversation with her about this topic. And three months later, they did another round of survey. She got an 80. Wow. And now she's at 100. And she's an exceptional leader. And so, Scott, my advice would be to say, you know, when things go wrong or when we've seen trust broken, it's often helpful to go back and just identify the elephant in the room yeah. to say, you know what? So this is what happened. And I can imagine that for many of you, this felt like a breach of integrity. I wasn't aligned with the values that I've been expressing, or I failed to follow through on a promise that I made. And I'm just trying to get a sense of how that impacted people. Mm -hmm. And then be able to say, okay, so this is why that happened. Here's my story. We interpret the world through stories, and I want to hear your story, and I'm kind of guessing that it's something along these lines. Here's my story of why that happened. Mm -hmm. And here's the steps I'm going to take to try to make sure that doesn't happen again. Right. And if you're seeing this happen, ask me about it in the future. So that I'm able to properly align, or maybe I'm making the wrong decision. And that's the approach that I would take to rebuilding trust. So much there to unpack and to love about that, right? Which is calling out the elephant in the room. I think that's so going back to a, a through line, right? In this conversation, stating what is, right? Here's my intention or here's what happened. There's no, we yeah. all know. It. And I love that you also talk about, hey, so here are the things I'm going to do. This is how I'm addressing that. And right. then the invitation for people. So if, you know, this is not what I want to do in the future, please help. Like, again, that vulnerability yeah. side to get people to go, oh, okay, awesome. Like Craig is really committed to this. He gets it. He's committed to it through these actions and is inviting me to be a support <laughs> yeah. form of support in case something goes off the rails. So with my sons, you know, I, I'm not perfect. And I tell them I'm not perfect. And when I mess something up, I'll, I'll say to them, wow, I didn't handle it the way I wish I had. You know, I, I could have done better. They love me and they're forgiving and they're like, oh, well, you know, I did this and I did that. And, and I'm like, yeah, I still didn't engage the way that I should have. I would have rather responded this way. And they accept that and respect it. And they love me and have a lot of patience for me because they know I don't think I'm perfect. Mm -hmm. And so they're not sitting there thinking, well, dad thinks he's perfect. I could never call him on anything. No, they can ask me questions. And when I'm getting frustrated about something or upset, that they will say, you seem upset. Is it me or is it you? Mm. And so they check in, right? Yeah, right. And also because, so they're not generating this story in their head about dad's pissed off and he's pissed off at me and he's pissed off because I did this and that and oh, bugger him. And no, they, they go, what are you upset about? Right. And I'm, I'm usually able to say it's me and I'm frustrated with the following things. And they're like, well, how do we fix that? Right. And so we're actually able to short circuit a lot of these disputes just by them being able to go, huh, you seem ticked off. Right. And they know I'm not going to blow up. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. 
what a rock star insight on that and and fantastic question because and I see this so often and and hear and it just drives conflict, right? Some you seem upset when we're chatting and then right away our own self-serving, uh oh, what did I do to upset Daryl? And why is he mad or he seems off today? What's his problem? And and it's seen as more of versus the the inquisitive. Yeah. That and judgmental, is it me or is it you? Is there something going on? It's almost being mad with, with your emotional reaction at the time. I love that. You know, is it yeah. being upset? You're stating something that is. And then is this about me or is this about you? Help me clarify. And then, hey, I'm here. How can I support you in it? I love it. Yeah, it's a healthy, fantastic relationship. So that they've learned they don't need to be scared when I'm pissed off. Right. Right. And, and so that enables me to be upset and, and to have moments where I'm ticked off and it's, it's not violent. It's not destructive. It's, it's a healthy emotional response to something that's going wrong. And then we start problem solving. And I think if we can start to engage that way a little bit better with each other, we'd be in a better place. Absolutely. And what I love about our conversation and every conversation we've had, and it, it's really around being curious, being curious within ourselves, yeah. being curious with other people and approaching this. And, and I also love this about you and your, the positive force is around approaching it without judgment. Like, so what's going on? And let's not get wrapped up in a lot of different sub narratives and everything. So what's your story? What's my story? Let's bring them together. Let's... Yeah. Let's figure this out. So we've only got a couple of minutes left. And I have one final question before I, I throw it to you to close. Stephen was wondering, thank you for being so open with your 10 levers. Is there one that people find really tough? They're almost surprised that's in the list. <laughs> well, so, so when I was working with a senior team, I talked to them about their context. I talked to them about ability. We agreed that they didn't under, their context was in flux. Their ability was, they couldn't articulate it well. When I said, what about integrity? They said, we each have 500 unread emails in our inbox. So no, we're not good on integrity. <laughs> and when we got to benevolence, they couldn't even talk about it. Wow. They were struggling. And I guess that one tends to be the one that people struggle with the most because they feel, they feel like, oh, I'm just going to be nice and it's going to be Pollyanna and all this kind of stuff. That's not the case. It's just not. I can have your best interest at heart and hold you accountable to help you thrive and succeed, give you honest feedback, all of those kinds of things in a way that's not damaging to your soul. And I guess, you know, some of the stuff we didn't get to was, was the emotional piece, yeah. you know, and this is, this is the root of a lot of the struggles we're seeing right now that a lot of the work on trust focuses on rational actors. It treats people like they're rational actors. And I don't, you've met people, right, Craig? We're not always rational. And and the more extreme those emotional states become, the less rational we are. And we need to intervene there first. If there's a powerful emotional component, then these cognitive levers don't work. And we need to intervene, try to reset those emotional states a bit, get people back on the same page. And I've been thrown into situations where that's been required. Chris Voss does some interesting stuff in the negotiation literature talking about settling people's emotional states, trying to bring them down. He used to negotiate for the FBI with terrorists and hostage takers and those kinds of folks. So he would be a good, good person to listen to. So yeah, so those are the ones I think that are kind of the unicorns that people struggle with a little bit. 
Absolutely. Well, and and I couldn't have asked for a, you know a better close in terms of. And I love your point, right? Because that was my motivation and do good to lead well. These aren't competing things. We can be benevolent and hold people accountable. Like so, we all want the same thing. We want we want to thrive. We want to create yeah. best possible conditions to be the best possible selves. So. I can care about that and then support you in that. And also there's an accountability within that. You don't have to sacrifice one for the other. So thank Absolutely. you so, so much for your time. This is just, and again, I, I feel like we could keep going. It, I agree. respectful of your time and your commitments and, and also the audience that's here today. Final thoughts around how people can learn more about you, where best to follow you and all that great stuff. So there's a couple of things. I think there is hope. People will sometimes feel despair. There is hope. You, you can go to my website, trustunlimited.com, look at some of the blog sections. There's other podcasts. There are articles I've written there, one on trust and parenting, one on trust and leadership. There's lots of material there that's, that's free. I would appreciate if people bought the book and tried to apply it and talk to your friends about it. You can find Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World anywhere you buy books online. It's available as an ebook, a hardcover, or an audible book. And I want to give a shout out to an app that's being launched called I Trust It, small i, capital trust. They are actually trying to get us to build a stronger sense of community. And what it does is it, it allows you to acknowledge places you trust, services or, or professional services, and it it does that also by connecting us to our friend networks and the places we're affiliated. It starts to take some of that context piece and make it more transparent. I don't get kickbacks or anything. It's just, it's an applied way for us to start rebuilding trust and practice that. Well, that's so awesome. And yes, I, I, I would second, please check out Daryl's website, all of the great articles, podcast appearances, check out the book. It is is absolutely, this is a taste of, of what's in there. And the powerful insight, what I love is the tangible takeaways, right? That we can immediately uh, put into practice in our personal and professional lives. Thank you, Daryl. This is always just a treat. I was really looking forward to this and, and can't wait to continue the conversation. And for everyone who's joined us today, thanks so, so much. Please connect and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Bye for now. Thanks, folks. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn or email info at craigdowden.com. I look forward to meeting you here next week for another transformational episode.